0: So hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Beyond the Cover. I am your host, John Robb. Unfortunately, my co-host, Jeff Ayers, is unable to make it today, but that's okay. We have a very, very exciting show. We're going to be back, joined here with our good friend, of course, author John Connolly. He's going to be talking about a very special book. It's book 18 in the Charlie Parker series called The Dirty South. It comes out November 3rd uh, in whatever format you want to buy it in, so make sure you get ready for that. I also want to remind everybody that all of our shows are brought to you by Suspense Magazine, so you can visit SuspenseMagazine.com. And don't forget our anthology coming out November 17th called Nothing Good Happens After Midnight with author Jeffrey Deaver and Linwood Barkley, John LaSquah, Heather Graham, Reese Bowen, Hank P. Ryan, and others. So check that out, Nothing Good Happens After Midnight. But without any further ado, we want to jump right in here to our guest. So John, how you doing, man? It's been a while since we talked. Yeah, it
1: is. Um, I, I'm a year older, I think. Uh, but still pretty, which is the main <laughs> I don't thing, know. Does this year I mean, count though? I mean though with picture. age, you're not you're not even aging. You know, you're, yeah. you're, you're
0: <laughs> I don't think it's this good year genes. should count. Good yeah. genes. <laughs> no,
1: I don't. I think we're. I think everybody's going to write this one off. Yeah,
0: yeah, we're going to write this one off. But I'll tell you, you got a very exciting book though coming up here because you kind of went back. Then something that's a little odd uh, that you did, because you're kind of into the series of Book 18, you went all the way back to the beginning. I love the title, The Dirty South. We've got to talk about that. But this is going back to where we can meet who Charlie Parker was, how he became Charlie Parker, the whole nine yards. So tell us a little bit about this one.
1: Well, I had just finished a, quite a lengthy sequence of novels that formed a kind of circle. It was six novels that kind of came full circle. And the analogy I've used is that after a while with the series, you become a bit like Jacob Marley. You know, you start hauling around your chains of the past everywhere you go. (laughs) Um, And it can be sometimes, it can be difficult for the writer because I'm getting older and I have trouble remembering where I left my keys, let alone, you know, what I put in the book six or seven books ago. But also, sometimes a long-running series can actually discourage readers from joining it. Because it's a bit like arriving at a party uh, where a conversation has been going on for you know, an hour before you got there, and you're standing at the side with your canapé and your glass of cheap white wine, you know, wondering what everybody's talking about. And right. so it's sometimes quite nice within a series to give new readers an opportunity to come in and not have to have any foreknowledge and not feel that everybody else who's reading the book knows a little bit more than they do, that, that you can come in fresh. Um, and so I, so I had an idea for a book, and I thought, well, this, is, this, this might work, this little story. Um, and, and it was a chance, like I said, for me as a writer, not to have to worry quite so much about the history of the characters, because I could put, set all of that to one side and simply start fresh. Um, so, yeah, there, there were those are the main reasons for doing it, you know, a chance to bring new readers in, but also a, a chance for me to do something slightly different.
0: Yeah. You know, and you say you're getting old. Dude, you're only two years older than me. Come on, we're not that old. We're not that old yet. But we do oh, forget we are, our keys. Are, I will we remember. At, we do yeah, do that. My yeah.
1: kids look at me. My kids look at me and, and, and look at me, and they, they think I'm old. Okay, I have, I have a
0: granddaughter. I, I have a three and a half <laughs> year old <laughs> oh, you're granddaughter.
1: Really old. I don't have a grandchild.
0: Yeah, look, yeah. Can you, read? you are old. So, yeah, see? You're old, <laughs> officially, you're old, okay? <laughs> Exactly. Well, you know, I mean, so you set the so you're taking the readers back to 1997. You're taking them back into Burden County, Arkansas, um, and where they're going to kind of meet Charlie Parker. Now, I I guess, of course, give us a little bit about that setting of Burden County, Arkansas, for people who aren't familiar with that kind of area.
1: Yeah, I had become. I've been reading a lot i I read a lot about american history and i I'm also quite magpie-ish. Um and I was curious about that period of the clinton administration uh you know it's it's just post white water um, but also you know he was a good old style southern politician and and I think people felt that when Clinton got into power, the South was going to benefit to some degree and and probably quite rightly so um and i and I've gone back a little bit further, and I found it quite maybe Americans know this but, but I found it kind of interesting which was that what transforms the South now a lot of things begin to transform the South including obviously the civil rights movement what transforms the industry in the South is the invention of air conditioning. because before air conditioning heavy industry in the South was quite limited because obviously you can't have people sweltering in heat in factories but also you can't do things like electronics or chemicals because They require a very particular environment, a sealed environment. So actually, the invention of air conditioning, 50s, 60s, and certainly into the 70s is when it becomes more prevalent in America, transforms the South because suddenly you have a cheap labor force. You've got states that, you know, aren't particularly strong on unions. There are good tax breaks. And so a lot of industries begin moving into the South and they tend to be electronics, defense, aeronautics. All of those industries begin to move into the South in a big way. And so... In the book, it's a small town, this little town in Arkansas called Cargill, has the opportunity to attract one of these industries to its town. And so it has its only opportunity to be rich. And not just rich, but, you know, to improve the quality of schools, to have better roads, you know, to actually bring up this dead town. But the problem is someone has killed a girl in the town. And if this gets out, obviously that's going to discourage uh, these people from coming to coming to the town because actually a second girl ends up dead in a similar way. So what they're trying to do is hold off an investigation until the paperwork is signed essentially. And then they go, listen, then you can try and investigate crimes. But well, we need this. And into this situation wanders Parker and, and he is he has been he, he is just after the death of his own wife and child and he's he's wandering essentially. He is looking for he's trying to investigate crimes that might have some connection to the death of his own wife and child. And he arrives in Cargill thinking that actually there's some, some similarities here. He just actually, having been there, that there aren't. And he just wants to get out of town. And when they realize who he is, they ask him to stay. They ask him to stay because he has experience in investigating that they simply don't have. And the thing is, he's very reluctant to stay because it's a different Parker. You know, throughout the series, he's becoming almost Christ-like towards the end. of. He will take on other people's pain as his own. He will investigate because he's unable to turn away from the suffering of others. This is a very different man. He is just consumed by grief and anger. And at one point, someone says to him, there's a preacher who says to him, are you like, do you think you're like the white savior? You know, come to Mm. save these poor black girls who are being killed. And Parker tells him, I don't care about any of you. He says, "I just want to get out of town." <laughs> you know, so it's a very different Parker. He's, you don't immediately warm to him. You know, he is just—he's filled with rage and grief and, and anger.
0: Right. I mean, he's beaten. He's beaten him broken. Basically, he's sitting in a cell. I mean, That's where you yeah, put him. he is. Yeah, he is. Yeah. He's,
1: he's 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 drawn. He's thrown in a cell. It's he's uncomfortable. He just wants to leave. Um, and, and what we see in the book is is this flicker of empathy the thing that will become Parker, that will define him, which is compassion. And we see it coming into being in this book. It's the moment when he realizes actually that you can decrease your pain, your own pain, by by acting to decrease the pain of others. That the, the path that he's chosen is actually going to lead to his own destruction and is going to make him like the man he's hunting. Because the man he's hunting doesn't care about anybody. And if Parker follows that path... He's essentially got to become, he's looking for a killer called the traveling man, as we find out in every dead thing. And if he he behaves in this way, if he continues to turn his back, he will become the traveling man's creature, essentially. He will become a version of this man, and this man will not only have deprived Parker of his family, but will probably deprive Parker of his soul. So it's that moment, that little flicker of empathy, and that was what interested me in the book. What is the point at which this man begins to transform what is the instigator of this change?
0: Mm-hmm. And the one thing, and, and the one analogy that you, just, that you used a little earlier was about the town, which is so true today, of course, even in, you know, in our pandemic world, which is a town putting the profits over the human life. And that's more important to them right now. Like they're like, look, we'll, we'll sacrifice a couple because we need this. And of course that's a huge argument that's going on today in our society. So of course you wrote this before anything was going on, but did you kind of go back and read that and say, you know, kind of laugh a little bit? Like uh, I didn't really, you know, know that that was going to come, you know, bigger than it is now.
1: No, I, you know, I suppose, people don't change all that much. and They I, really I don't. Books, I, I've always quite, li- I, I've always, yeah, they really don't that much. <laughs> we don't learn as much as we kind of hope we would. Um, right. I'm, in my earlier books, I've, I'd often been very interested in creating these kind of larger-than-light villains because I quite like those explorations of, of grand evil, I suppose. And in The Dirty South, everything is understandable. You know, you can make an argument. The, the, there's an argument for their approach to what they're doing because what they're saying is look when do, where does the, the good of the many exceed the good of the few you know at what point are we prepared to make sacrifices at what point do we stop making sacrifices and everybody in the town can justify what they do to themselves um and i remember you know the victor i think it was victor hugo who said there are no small evils right that, you know once you once you progress down that path you, you see this sudden incremental increase. Uh, James Lee Burke said something when I interviewed him many years ago. He said, you know, if you give the devil an air conditioner, you'll never get him out of the office, which is a lovely way of putting it. You know? <laughs> so what I'm saying is that once you, begin, once you begin going down the set, it very, very quickly from, from what seemed like very small moral compromises. Mm -hmm. they become great ones and Parker sees this and and there's a the police chief in the town sees this as well that you know you you simply can't turn your back on these young women who are dying and you can't turn your back on them because you know you will sacrifice something of yourself you know this is not the community that we want to build and this is not the society that we want to build I was curious about going back to that period though was you know, if you look at Arkansas during that, that time of the 90s, it, you wouldn't really have had that many black police officers. You certainly wouldn't have had that many women police officers. No, like, you know, not at all. The research, you know, it, but when, it, but yeah, when a small town appointed a female police officer, it, it made the newspapers around the state. It was a big deal. And so you, in a sense... You, you, I, I include there is a black police officer in the book. There, there's a female police officer. You, you you have to write these novels. It kind of goes back to the question that you asked. You're writing them in the present, and but you can't precisely imitate the past because it would be a very uncomfortable read. You know, it would just. This is a society that is essentially ruled by white people, but to have to read about that at the moment would be wouldn't be a very pleasant reading experience. So you kind of have to toy with history a little bit you know you have to change it because you know otherwise a female reader picking up the book a black reader picking up the book is just going to go well this this is not a society i particularly want to read about you know and it also right now has very little relevance to society that we're trying to well it has relevance to the society we want to construct today because obviously we have the black lives matter movement so you you have to take into account actions in the present when you're writing about the past now i think
0: now the title Dirty South uh, how did you come up with that? Is it what's in that title well it actually comes from
1: rap from southern rap um, and it's not a what when I, when I, when actually it was interesting when I gave it to my American publishers somebody in a publishers meeting said we can't call a book that Nobody in the South's going to want to read that book. You know they'll think we're insulting them. And actually, it was a kind of statement of intent um, that came out of it. There were a particular group of musicians, some of them out of Atlanta in particular, and it was you know this is a, this is we work with the soil there's red dirt, but also it, it has that sense of of a society that actually operates a bit on graft there's a little bit of corruption going on there. There's a, there's a, there's a flaw in that society. And so it, it has a dual meaning. And then later, there was a, a very, well, within Americana circles, a very well-known um, album by the, the Drive-By Truckers called oh. The Dirty South. And the truckers are actually, you know, they're, they're, they're deep Southern boys. So it, it, it's the idea of, of taking on this thing that appears to be almost like an insult, but isn't it. It is a, it is a, a, a version of Southern identity, Um, So I thought it just made it had a dual meaning in the title, which I quite liked.
0: Now, when a book like this, uh, of course, and and it gets read by uh, your fans in Europe, how do they kind of react to the setting? Because they would really have no, uh, you know, no reference of what America was back in those times and whatnot. So, how do they kind of react when when you see them, you know, whether they tweet you or email you about a book like this?
1: Oh, I think we have a, well, we in Europe have naturally have a fascination with, with what's going on in America. Because I sometimes try to explain, I still very occasionally get, not very occasionally, quite often actually, uh, letters, sometimes from American readers complaining um, perhaps about p- political or, or um, societal positions in the books. Um, and feeling that I'm, a, I'm some outrageous liberal Um, And I'm not really a terribly liberal person, curious to say, certainly not by Irish standards, uh, but probably by American standards I am. But we we have this, Irish people and Europeans, we have this deep connection to the United States. So much of of American society and American culture has influenced what we do. And so we're often curious about the roots of it. We're often curious about exploring aspects of American history in books. So we don't have that much trouble making I think that connection, when when it's presented to us in a novel, and you've got to remember as well, we're, we're now um, you know decades and generations of immersion in American fiction. We know the conventions of mystery fiction; they're so much a part of what we do. And I think make people readers quite like seeing an unfamiliar environment. We become so used to crime novels set in New York, crime novels set in Boston, in New Orleans; these places have become quite quite familiar to us. So to be thrust and to see a character that you're familiar with. Trust into a very different environment. It's often quite refreshing for the reader, I think.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, because it's something new, and it's something a little exciting, and it's something a little different. It does give you that window into that time when, you know, I lived it. I mean, I was voting in the presidential election, of course, in that time in the 90s. I could vote in 88 when I, when I turned 18. So that sure. was... Yeah, so so it was very you know. What did I have my ear to the ground as much as I did? Probably not. I was living in Ohio at the time, which is different than Arkansas, Midwest, South. But you always get that sense, and, and you and you kind of nail it. I mean, that's the that's the that's the really great thing about you because you always really nail the areas in America you're from, and you're from Ireland, and people got to look at that and be like, that's such a juxtaposition. Like, how can they do that? <laughs>
1: Well, yeah. Well, it, it, you, you approach it like research. I, I did go there. I spent a lot of time going on And Thankfully, one of the, the things that doesn't change is topography, you know, mountains, True. rivers, forests.
0: Swampy, but then what you do, it's swampy, humidity. humid. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, it's only around there. You have to find people who, I find people who live through the era that I'm writing about. And, and what I found generally all through the years I've been writing is that people are anxious to help. They want you to get things right. And they often have really fascinating stories that they want to share. Um, and I found a lovely couple in Arkansas. When I was researching there, they, they met me for coffee. They chatted about growing up there. And then a, a man named J.R. Howard, who had occupied just about every position in Arkansas law enforcement throughout his life and is now retired, um, and was just a joy to, to talk to and, and to... to because he was so open and so full of these fascinating stories. So, so I was able to pull all that stuff in. Um, but, you know, what was really curious about it, one of the things that struck me when I was, when I was driving around there, I, there, was a, there was a video library in the town. You know, um, you know the, the, the area that I, that I, that I chose to, to set the book in and the area where I was staying, I still had a video library. And I was thinking, you know, in this is slightly off point, but I remember when a few years back, and you remember this as well, but there were a group of, of crime writers, um, who essentially became, I think, kind of shills for eBooks. You know, they decided that they were, they were, that the year of the printed book was over, that the year of the physical book, physical bookstore was over, that we were all going to be reading on screen. And therefore the sooner everybody got around to this, the better and put bookstores out of their misery. And we could all go on and live in the future. Um, and one of the objections that I had to that, I had many objections to them, uh, but one was that it, it was a very first world view, because it assumed that everybody had access to the internet, exactly. easy access to, uh, to high speed internet, and that everybody had access to, to the, these devices. And yet I knew from my experience in Maine, I, I have friends in Maine who are holding down two jobs, and actually they just, they, they get their internet in Starbucks. You know, they, that actually they, yeah. they're, they're, worth, they're living so close to the edge that the idea of paying the local internet provider would just push them over. So they don't have high-speed internet. They don't well, have Netflix. They read books. Well, what books about libraries? And so to go
0: – exactly, yeah. You don't have print books. Where, what are you going to do – there's no libraries. And people go to libraries all the time for free internet and things like that that you're talking about.
1: Exactly. And, and also for books. you know, like yes. this time Research, you know, everything. You know, we, we, we so, yeah, research, but also when, when times are tough, we, we really need libraries because we remember actually, you know, I can't, maybe I can't afford to buy the latest book by whoever it is, the latest Lee Child, the latest James Patterson, whatever it might be. I just don't have that kind of money at the moment, right. but my local library will give it to me for nothing. And so yeah. libraries will get you through that period. And so when I was there, you know, it's that thing that certainly that actually this part of the world it still didn't have access to to decent internet. There were people who were still struggling along. They appreciated the fact that they, not just that they had a a local library, that they had a video library where they could go and rent films from. Um, And so, you know, those little things, you put them in a book and they, they're the little things that give the, the books veracity, that, People that give them a certain truth. You have to go out and you have to walk around and you have to take pictures and you have to talk to people and and you accumulate knowledge and then you throw away 99% of it. <laughs> you know, that's a terrible <laughs> thing. I fill like all these books, notebooks with, with notes and fascinating details and then I have to pick the one detail in a hundred that I right. think is actually relevant to the books um, and that's always been very hard and I've, that's a learned thing. I know if I were to go back to every dead thing, I was very reluctant to throw out my research because it had cost me so much money to do it and I put so <laughs> much effort into it that I felt I had to put everything I knew into it and, and now I've, I've, I've got over that. i got over myself a little bit.
0: Now, did writing a book like this, going all the way back to the beginning, kind of reinvigorate you to kind of sit there and come out with 19, like, right away? When you were finished, did you want to jump right into book 19 for Charlie Parker and keep going on it? Or or what kind of did you do after this? Did you kind of sit back and think about the series at all? How did this book kind of change things going forward?
1: I've, I've 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 never sat down to write a Parker book and not wanted to do it. You know, I didn't think that I, I – I wasn't out of kilter or out of form or anything like that. When I, when I finished it, I had actually – I committed to writing the script for the Book of Lost Things, which is very, very slowly moving towards being filmed. Um, and a lot of people had – other people had struggled with it. And I, I said to the people who had approached me, the, the film company, look, I think I, could, I know how to do this, but, but no one has ever asked me to write a script before. And I just I said, you know, I, I don't think they'd expect me to do that. So I used that as a break in between finishing The Dirty South and moving on. And then um, lockdown happened, and I began... I had already written a lot of the next Parker book, but I I remember thinking when when the first lockdown started, God, you know, what can I do to distract people? And I realized everybody would be looking at their phones. We would be taking in our news from screens, possibly. And I thought, well, what can I give people... That's a mild distraction from that. So I began writing a novella called um, The Sister Strange, which I published a, a, 600 to 1,000 words of every day. I wanted something you could easily read on a phone. Um, and then we ended up, that ended up being translated into five languages each day. And it suddenly became this massive what seemed like. I thought, this would be, be pretty easy. Um, and it became this extraordinary thing that went on for about eight or nine weeks and took up so much of my time. Um, but it allowed me to write in a slightly different way. Because I'm quite obsessive about what I do, and I don't let, even my editors don't see anything until the 10th or 11th or 12th draft. Jenny, my other half, for a long time I wouldn't ever read it until it was actually a proof stage. But wow. now I realize she's got a very good eye. So she reads it just before it goes to the publisher. So people didn't really get to look under the hood of the first draft to see how these things are put together. So, but when you write in that way, when you're publishing something every day, you don't have time to go back over it. You have to live with all of your errors. And so it was a way of, so people actually got to see the book as it was being written without any kind of mediation. Um, And now I have that, and I think I'd like to go back to it and rewrite it a little bit and and maybe pick up one or two of those errors. So that was kind of an interesting thing to do during lockdown. So I'm not sure that, Dirty Set didn't necessarily change how I wrote, um, but lockdown did a little bit. It made me okay. a little bit less precious about what I was doing, I think, having written in that way and allowed people to see the flaws as they went along. I thought, you know, so what if there's a couple of flaws in what I do? You know, it, that's humanity. That's, that's the nature of the creative form.
0: Exactly. I, now, you, I'm sure your fans email you, and they always have the like this one burning or two burning questions about Charlie Parker and his history and this and that. Do you answer those questions for them in this book? Do they finally get those answers?
1: <laughs> no, we're not. Running, we're not running a democracy here. You can ask anything you like, but you may not get the answer. So no, I mean, the question. The question I. The question I get asked most often is: Is how will it end? And I, I sort of end up feeling a bit like George or R. Martin, where people go, going, George, can you write down the ending before you die, please? Because we, you know, we've really invested a lot in it." Right. Um, and so and I tend I I still love writing these books I love looking at the world through Parker's eyes but uh, for people who've read a lot of my books uh, they they will know that there is a a larger story happening in the background Um, and that will require um, a conclusion at some point I think Um, and I've, I've often said that um you know, if I go to the because I'm a middle aged man, we, we'll decide we're not old men, we're 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 middle aged men. Let's let's settle Let's agree on age. And like <laughs> any sensible middle aged man, I I go to the doctor once a year and he pokes and prods. Um, yeah. And if you were to tell me, you know, don't don't book any holidays after next June. <laughs> yeah, you you're know, like, oh. Think about, about yeah. Have you got a will? <laughs> I would be able to provide. I would be able to provide that conclusion. So I I know know where the, where the books are going, but uh, for now, I'm quite happy for them to amble along at their own pace and to keep returning to Parker and Angel and Louie, because um, I enjoy looking at the world through their eyes, yeah. um, and I still get a great deal of pleasure out of the books.
0: So, is your next book a standalone, or is another Charlie Parker after this no,
1: one? Oh, no, I, no it's, it's a book called The Nameless Ones, which is essentially an Angel and Louis book, and picks up on one very minor detail in in a book of bones, which was the book before this, and then I'm not sure. Um, I have three other things at various stages of completion. Uh, in part because I can't go anywhere, <laughs> you know. True, I that's true. Able to tour, I have been able to do any. This is this is my level. You know, you know, you know, you know kind of social contact, John. You yep. know, we're like we're like bosom buddies. I'll probably have to declare you to the authorities. And yeah. so um, I I am um, I, I I have a quite obsessive. There's a little part of me that's quite obsessive, um, and one of the nice things about touring and and going out and meeting people in bookstores was that it got me away from my desk. But stuck in the house, all I do is write and all I do is work. Yeah. Um, so I stay out of my kids' hair and I just and I just write. So I've actually got quite a, quite a lot of work done uh, during this period, uh, and so now I can, I, I I'm I'm going to see which one I'll i I'll, I'll concentrate on after the nameless ones. I haven't really kind of made that decision yet.
0: Well, my wife Shannon, of course, loved the book He, and was always wanting to know if you were ever going to kind of write in that genre again, when you did, you know, the the Laurel uh, story mm-hmm. in the book He. And so, uh, do you have any plans to kind of get outside and do something like that again?
1: Oh yeah, I, there are always ideas. I, I have. I'm sitting in my office at the moment, and I can see the other. The there's another pile of, of books relating to a particular period of history that I've been accumulating. Again, probably for the last decade or so, that I keep meaning to sit down and and look at um, because I have an idea for something, and it may be that because I've got a little bit of my ahead of myself thanks to COVID nineteen and the lockdown, it is the silver lining to the cloud that I may be able to carve out the time to do this at last. Uh, yeah, awesome. so there are always I always have ideas for for things that I would like to do and and for departing because much as I love mystery fiction, I it maybe it's different for other writers I know, but I find it quite hard to to develop as a writer solely within the context of mystery fiction. I, I just find there are limitations within it. And so when I step outside it and write something like He or the Book of Lost Things or the Short Stories, I develop new skills, I think. I, I get to I get to experiment a little bit more. And some of those experiments feed back into the Parker novels. And they change and, I think, improve as a consequence. You know, I noticed after he, for example, my books became a lot more dialogue-driven. Even when I had to go back and glance at every dead thing to do the research, just to make sure that that the dirty stuff tied in with it, it was very Um, Uh text-heavy. I was very into a lot of description. Um, And because... He is so much a book of dialogue. Um, those later books have, become, have begun to use dialogue in a slightly different way. So that was a skill that I learned from stepping outside the genre and and experimenting. Um, and, and as a consequence, the Parker books, I think, have, have changed and I think have improved a little bit. Um, I hope they have. But, you know, I would say that, wouldn't I? <laughs> well, I would like to think th- that I'm getting better rather than getting worse after yeah.
0: <laughs> Well, my 20-year-old daughter, she actually started reading you, of course, because of the gates With, with, your, with your YA, and now she's older, and now she's in Charlie Parker So you kind of got her in the YA, and now you kind of got her into the Charlie Parker So it was a nice little transition for her
1: it was, like, it was like a gateway drug for her. It was
0: a gateway drug. <laughs> <laughs> and they're always really, asking, and, and she's always come back asking, going, Is he ever going to write another like The Gates and The Infernals? And I'm like, I don't well, actually, think so. That, literally,
1: at the moment, I, just this week, my British publishers are reissuing that those three books as a single volume. And I wrote what was supposed to be a short story, became a really, really long short story to add to that book. Um, oh. And then I thought, well, it's, it's not fair to maybe pay ask people who have bought the earlier books to buy the anthology the volume just to get that. So it will be, it's been published as an e-book as well, um, so for, for Halloween. I think my American publishers are racing to catch up with my British publishers. But it's a book called "The Monks of Appalling Dreadfulness. Um, and it's ah. a little Samuel Johnson short story for, for Halloween. So I, will so have I do. To, I I, I'm really it's funny, those books have no look at all, John. Uh, and it was—it's always been a source of pain to me because they're among my favorite things of what I've written. Because they the were fantastic. The probably a, well, I, the, the voice in the books was as close to my own as I've ever written, and so yeah. I have a, a kind of fondness for them for that reason. But for a whole lot of reasons, like they just—they they really didn't get the little bit of look that they needed. So yeah. it's quite nice that my my British publishers have have reissued them. Um, it's really nice to see them back in print.
0: Yeah. So, the best place for everyone to find out about everything, of course, is just to go to johnconleybooks.com, and that's where they can
1: portal all their social media? Yes, indeed, and and we update it regularly, and I have a newsletter, so we send stuff out to people to let them know what's happening, and and we always try, when a book comes out, to try and give them something extra, so with... For the Dirty set, because I can't tour, a lot of the independent bookstores are going to have a nice tote bag and a little reproduction vintage postcard that I've signed um, in the absence of being able to get into bookstores. Uh, so all the information about that is on. will be on the website too.
0: Nice. And do you have a social media platform that you do more than others that people can kind of connect with you? Uh,
1: I, I suppose I quite like Twitter because it's short and sweet. You know, it's it's a very easy one to engage with. There is a a facility on the website for people to contact me directly, uh, but but, but I tend to be a bit slower to do that because obviously the answers require slightly more length. And so I tend to tackle that once or twice a month, whereas Twitter I can look at quite easily during the day.
0: Well, I'll tell you, John, it's been always, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Of course, you can come on whenever you want, but the book is called The Dirty South. Comes out election night, so turn off the fucking TV and read the book because you don't (laughs) want to even know what's going to happen on that night anyway. So you want to just get into this because this is what you, so again, The Dirty South, November 3rd is when it's available, whatever format you want. But John, dude, it's always a pleasure. Wish you nothing but the best. Hope you stay safe over Uh, there, please. And you, John. Yes, because, you, you know, John, chaos is so, coming. I so, so to talk to you. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, I like the,
1: mark my words, the apocalypse is on its
0: way. Oh, shit, here it comes. All right. <laughs> <laughs> all right, John, you stay safe, man, and we will talk soon, all right?
1: A real pleasure, John. Look after yourself. Bye-bye.
0: All right, bye-bye.